0: Hey everybody, welcome to this, the seventh roundtable discussion featuring an in-depth conversation about the technocratic roots of Agenda 21 with guests Tom DeWeese and Patrick Wood. This discussion is being recorded on June 17th, 2020. Tom DeWeese is the president and founder of the American Policy Center, an organization dedicated to the preservation and enforcement of property rights in the United States. He is the author of the new political thriller Erase, as well as the Amazon bestseller Sustainable, The War on Free Enterprise, Private Property, and Individuals. Tom has worked tirelessly for over 30 years to educate the American public about the importance of creating a solid boundary between individual decision-making and state and corporate-imposed power. Much of his time is spent describing the creeping effects of U.N. Agenda 21 as it is slowly being implemented city by city through a backdoor process of public-private partnerships. This circumvents state and national governments by approaching local municipalities and applying this worldwide program of economic planning, using the power of eminent domain, to engage in land development projects against the wishes of individual property owners. Find out more about Tom's work at www.americanpolicy.org our second guest patrick wood started down the rabbit hole decades ago working with legendary historian anthony sutton researching the pervasive influence of the globalist trilateral commission whose members have comprised many top-level positions in government since its inception in the early 1970s his work now focuses on the technocracy movement which works as a hidden hand behind much of the modern neo-corporatist agenda He is the author of Technocracy, The Hard Road to World Order, as well as Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Control, and is currently the lead editor of the website Technocracy News and Trends. Find out more about Patrick at www.technocracy.news. I am your host today. My name is Doug McKenty, and I am the producer of the weekly interview podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty. Check out my work at www.theshiftnow.com, on Facebook, YouTube, or your favorite podcast hosting site at The Shift with Doug McKenty, or on Twitter at McKenty. As always, I would like to thank Rob Rubin at Transparent Media Truth for producing this episode. Without him, this discussion would not be possible. You can find all episodes of the Roundtable Discussions at transparentmediatruth.com or on the Transparent Media Truth YouTube channel. Without further ado, enjoy this roundtable between myself, Tom DeWeese, and Patrick Wood. Hey, everybody, and thanks for checking out this, the seventh roundtable discussion. We're talking Agenda 21 uh, and technocracy today with Patrick Wood and Tom DeWeese. Let's just get started with a quick history in their own words.
1: Patrick, do you want to let us know uh, about your history and your focus on technocracy? Sure. I originally started writing and researching in the late 1970s with the late Professor Anthony Sutton. We became the de facto experts on the Trilateral Commission back in that day, and that's where I got my start on globalization, studying it and stuff. I've been studying it ever since, and I discovered historic technocracy a few years ago. Actually, it's been huh, time flies, maybe 10 to 11 years now, and uh, I immediately identified the technocracy, historic technocracy meme as being what the Trilateral Commission was interested in When it said it was going to create a new international economic order. So I have since written two books on technocracy. I've done a lot of original research, uh, traveled here and there to access original archives of documents from the 1930s and 40s. Amazing journey. And uh, I'm now editing um, technocracy.news, which is the only website on the entire internet, believe it or not, that deals with a critical Critical analysis of technocracy. It's just me. Either I'm crazy, or the world is crazy, or we're all crazy. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, you know, they may be coming to take us all to the funny farm pretty soon. Uh, Tom, cue up that record, would you? <laughs> They're coming to take us away. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's
0: very true. Unfortunately, we've got to watch out. I just had a, a local um, politician in my area post. Uh, People who aren't wearing face masks are psychopaths. And I had to write, you know, hey, this is a dangerous place to go. I mean, come on. But um, it's getting more and more of a popular point of view. Uh, To think differently means you're
1: just a crazy person. So I I would hasten to add also, uh, Doug, that I'm the executive director and founder of Citizens for Free Speech, which is dedicated to fighting not only fighting censorship, but supporting and enabling the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And uh, I very strongly believe that uh, is, the attack is not by accident that we see on all the elements of the First Amendment. If we lose the First Amendment, I fear we will have lost everything. So um, I've, I have enjoyed that battle with people around the country uh, to be involved with Citizens for Free Speech. It's citizensforfreespeech.org. That's pretty easy. I thought of that because you mentioned face mask, and that's a, a big topic with us right now, because mm-hmm. don't the face mask appear to be like a muzzle that you would put on a dog, you know? Muzzle me, you know, so I can't speak, so people can't understand me, so I can't broadcast my voice. Well, we have launched a campaign at Citizens for Free Speech to help people ditch the face mask legally. And uh, I won't uh, say any more about it right now, but this has been a hot button that we've had now for, well, ever since the big face mask thing started. Uh, that's that's enough for me.
0: I mean, I hear you, right? The first thing to go was the right to freedom of assembly with the shelter in place orders. Uh, not even a conversation about that one. Isn't there something in the Constitution somewhere about the right to assembly? Well, not when there's a virus, I guess. not. <laughs> so, um, yeah, a lot of work to be done uh, to try to maintain uh, those freedoms in this day and age, for sure. So Tom, do you want to give us a quick synopsis of what you've been doing in terms of uh, property rights protection
2: and the history of Agenda 21? Sure. I, I tell you what, I uh, this is my 52nd year of activism. Wow. Uh, I started back in uh, the late 1960s fighting the uh, SDS on college campuses uh, across the country. I was part of Young Americans for Freedom, so forth. And... Uh, I I said recently that the SDS was the Antifa of that time, and we're seeing exactly the same tactics, exactly the same uh, uh, philosophy being promoted. And uh, so it's just old home week for me. And uh, over those years, I got involved in a lot of different issues. And uh, uh, education was very concerned uh, during the Clinton administration about what was happening to the education system. Now we're seeing. The result of that is we have, um, you know, factories producing little, little, uh, little red, uh, kids and, uh, also personal, uh, privacy, those issues. And, uh, we focused, began to focus on property rights, uh, as our main focus because, uh, as I worked on uh, the agenda 21 issue, I was one of the first, uh, Uh, four people that were really out uh, spreading the word about Agenda 21. Uh, My uh, mentor on that was uh, the late Henry Lamb and uh, uh, Michael Kaufman, who also is deceased now. And, uh, you know, but we uh, we realized that this encompasses so much of our lives that people can't uh, wrap their heads around it. And I started telling them, if you focus on property rights, a laser focus, then uh, uh, you, you know they can't in, impose these policies without destroying property rights. So that's that's why we focused on that. And uh, now what we're doing right now is we've just put together I think one of the most comprehensive manuals for grassroots activists that uh, to teach them how to f- how to organize and how to fight on the local level, how to get people elected. Things like that. We're just about to release that, and then we're going to do a series of webinars uh, with some of the experts around the country, some of the best people I know, to uh, discuss uh, these things and help teach uh, people how to stand and fight. So that's what we're doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've been working on lately, just thinking about churning in my head, is um, thinking about, speaking of the psychological metaphors, or, you know, (laughs) they're... maybe engaging in some projection, calling us uh, psychopaths or sociopaths, those people that don't want to wear masks, saying, oh, you lack empathy, you don't care about others. But to me, this concept of property rights is the, essentially the psychological equivalent of making a solid boundary between uh, your yourself and an aggressor, including passive-aggressive behavior, which a lot of this starts out as passive-aggressive on the side of the government, Um, Patrick, you talked about that in technocracy rising actually, um, sort of shaming or virtue signaling people into following these rules as a kind of a first step before they can bring in the actual aggressive behavior of fining or imprisoning or committing people who disagree, uh, as they roll out the agenda 21, um, you know, concept, but, um, Tom, do you want to talk to that just as a boundary, What, how property rights can function against aggression if we have a solid property rights system set up?
2: Well, first of all, if you don't have your own property to stand on, it's pretty hard to stand there and declare your independence and uh, and speak your, uh, your mind on things. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, if you don't have private property rights, then the ability to have a second amendment, the ability to have uh, uh, the fourth amendment and so forth uh, are just aren't there. And uh, so this is this is where you stand. And uh, otherwise you're on government property. And that is where this is headed in so many directions. The, uh, we can you know, a little later get on into the, the smart growth programs and things like that. But uh, you're hearing more and more uh, leaders, uh, the the uh, you know, Blasio in New York, is, has said several times that we have got to get rid of private property rights It's in the way of them putting their agenda in place that should tell you pretty much all you need to know about that agenda
1: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, but they're getting more and more blatant about it that we have got to eliminate private property and uh, You know, that's that's I think is is our most important right
0: Yeah, I mean you know, philosophically, at least going back to John Locke, it's really the foundation of any kind of personal freedom. Like you're not a slave because you automatically have a property right to your own person, but then extending out to things that you own, you know, you can protect your place, your property, where you live, you have freedom of choice um, based on this concept. So it is interesting how many people are so against it that it's been ingrained in people's minds that somehow property rights facilitate you know the creation of these mega billionaires, um, and people just believe it. Um, but the idea, when you were talking, it made me think about that idea of inalienable rights, which actually comes from the notion of uh, un—you uh, can't put a lien on a human right. You can't, uh, you know, put a, a payment on it. And even the idea of property taxes means that you don't have a property right to your property. It is all government land right now. Uh, if you can't afford to pay the taxes, they take it away.
2: Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, the other thing is that uh, as Hernando de Soto, uh, who is a, an economist from, uh, from Peru, uh, you know, he wrote a book, The Mysteries of Capital, Why It Works in the West and Nowhere Else. One of the major points that he makes in that book is uh, that private property ownership is the means for the average person to build personal wealth. This is the reason why the United States became uh, very wealthy and, uh, uh, you know, people were prospering more than anywhere else in the world very quickly. We, I mm-hmm. mean, we've soared past ancient cultures, ancient countries, uh, because we had that right to ownership of property. And the founding fathers were adamant about uh, protection of private property as a means to uh, guarantee, maintain our freedom.
0: <clears throat> yeah, it brings to mind the fact, I think, that uh, so much, and we also, not only are we dealing with the the coronavirus issue, of course, but now, uh, the racial issue—that the redlining in the 1950s actually prevented the African American community from participating in a lot of the property rights purchases that occurred um, for Caucasian families, uh, and so they were actually prevented from accruing the wealth that I think you know still maintains um, that that economic difference between the the races, the, that racial disparity that's occurring today. Just the fact that. Uh, many Caucasian families were able to have access to those private property rights in the 50s and African-American communities weren't. It's um, It just goes to show you how much wealth was created by the ability uh, to be able to purchase that property and have those property rights, at least um, back in the 50s and 60s, now more and more
1: getting eroded away. There's another- One of the things aspect. that,
2: uh, go, go ahead, Pat, I'm sorry. I
1: was just saying there's another aspect of this that needs to be brought into the discussion. And everything you say about property rights, uh, just the physical property like real estate and so on is absolutely right. The original technocracy movement from the 1930s had no provision for property rights whatsoever. They wanted everybody to live at the instance of the technate. They would make all the decisions. You would have nothing. They would give you an allocation of uh, spending uh, resources. They call it energy script, where you could spend that script during the period of time, but at the end, it would expire and then he would wait for another allocation. There was no ability to save money. There was no ability to have an inheritance. Uh, you, you lived at the instance of the, uh, uh, the, the controllers. This basically is feudalism. <clears throat> back in the days of feudalism, when people could not own anything, squatters went out, that's why they call them squatters, they went out and just basically squatted, sat down, whatever, on a little piece of ground, back 40, whatever, or some land baron's property, and he became the property of the landowner, And that's one of the ways that slavery got started in, in the whole world, mm-hmm. was that people became chattel for other people. And if you look at technocracy today, historically, it doesn't matter where you look at it. You look at Agenda 21, sustainable development, doesn't matter. The, the way this is headed, the slippery slope that, that we're headed towards, is that they will eventually end up with ownership over, not just your property, they'll take that away, but also ownership over you, where they can tell you what, you, you what to do. A good example of this is the mandated vaccines that are coming. You know this is coming. It's all over the media, all over the big pharma. They're going to mandate vaccines for every person on the planet And this means, uh, in fact, uh, who was that guy, um, Alan Dersowicz, uh, said, Mm -hmm. we'll drag you kicking and screaming into the doctor's office. We'll plunge a needle into your arm. See, this is a property rights issue. Do you have right to your own body or not? Do you have right to your children? You see, as a family unit, while they're still minors, are they your property or do they belong to the state? Can the state tell you? Can the state tell you when you're allowed to die, when you're too old to be useless anymore or useful anymore to anybody? Can they mandate uh, a certain age of euthanasia, for instance? See, these are all related to property rights, and you get right down to it. The first thing they're picking off is the low-hanging fruit of physical property, like the real estate and you know other assets, owning companies and shares and stocks, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But eventually, it's going to get down to where it's really headed, and that is ownership of you personally.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, a-
1: and you know, uh, Wayne uh, Wayne Hage,
2: rancher Wayne Hage, who's fought uh, the battle and on, uh, he's passed away now, but his family continues to fight for their property. He said, "If you don't have the right to own property, you are property," and uh, exactly right. what Pat is saying, and uh, what we're seeing happen now is this attack on private property in these smart growth communities and all of our uh, our cities where uh, they're moving towards these stack and pack high rises. And uh, the state of Oregon became the first state to ban single family home zoning. Uh, they, and, and uh, they said there has a housing crisis. That's because they've created a housing crisis with their smart growth programs. Uh, the mayor of Minneapolis said that uh the, um, the people living in uh, the single family home neighborhoods are self-segregating them pe- their, themselves from people they don't want to live next door to. Therefore, private property home ownership is racist. Mm-hmm. So this is the language we're getting over and over and over again now. And, and of course, you had Ocasio-Cortez just recently attacked landlords uh, saying you shouldn't have the right to make money off of just owning property. which is a very root of our system, uh, you know, to do that. And what we're headed to right now with all the stack and packs, with all the uh, moving of that, it's all rental (laughs) properties. And now they've taken landlords and they've said, you know, they've they've added all kinds of taxes, all kinds of expenses uh, to the properties that the landlords are trying to rent. And the city of Baltimore said, well, it's racist if you ask, Somebody, if they can afford to rent your property, and the attack on the landlords with uh, uh, rent controls and so forth, are making it so they can't earn a living from it. Where this is all headed, right down to the bottom line, is eventually all housing will be government housing, and there will be no private housing uh, across the country, except probably for the gated, uh, walled uh, estates of the uh, the elite. But other than that. We'll all be living in government housing.
0: Patrick, before we get too far into it, will you just give for the audience a, an overview of what technocracy is for those people who maybe uh, don't have an understanding of it
2: just yet?
1: I think I've lost your audio, Patrick. Are you? Sorry, I did. I okay. had stuck my cough button on. Technocracy was a historical movement started in 1932 officially at Columbia University in New York City uh, By engineers and scientists who believed that capitalism was dead uh, That was in the heat of the Great Depression and they took it upon themselves to create a brand new economic system They call technocracy. It wasn't a political system. It was an economic system. It's an important distinction to make uh, In fact, they didn't see any need for a political system. They they saw, you know, it's all about economics if we design a system that will replace capitalism and free enterprise, and it will be based on scientific algorithm, then there's no need for a political system. You don't need to have people representatives because science always says what's right. It always does the right thing. Of course, we know that's not true, but that's what they said. And so <clears throat> that's, that's where the, the, the uh, utopia vision for technocracy started out. It was a system of social engineering. They wanted to use science to engineer everything in sight. All, all systems, all resources, all processes, all people. There was nothing to be left out of their quote unquote scientific model. And then I hasten to say it was a utopian system. It was like a brave new world uh, that Huxley wrote, similar to that. It never would have gone anywhere as a utopian system because all utopian systems have failed before they ever got off the ground. <clears throat> but in 19. Uh, 73 backwards to 1968, David Rockefeller got together with a Columbia professor uh, by the name of Zbigniew Brzezinski. And Brzezinski was writing about technocracy. Um, he called it the technotronic era. He was a theoretician, political science guy at that point, a genius, I might add, an evil, but genius. And he foresaw a time when uh, all of the other Marxist, socialist, communists and stuff was going to give way to a technotronic era. That's what he called it. He said, that's what's coming. And in that technotronic era, he brought in all of the things, uh, kind of the flavors of original technocracy about property and about, um, you know, energy, control over energy and stuff like that. Rockefeller saw an opportunity to hijack the utopian dream. And that's what he did. He hijacked. It got a little bit changed, admittedly, at that point, but the drive goal that Rockefeller had was to use technocracy as a way to get control over the resources of the world. I'm fully convinced of that today. I remember back when when uh, when the gold standard was cut from the US dollar, uh, there was a flurry of articles that appeared back then analyzing what does this mean for the future. And one of the things that sticks in my mind mean it meant that the future of money was doomed. The way they had structured the system, it was absolutely guaranteed to fail at some point, maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years, maybe out to 2020 or 2025, who knows, we're on thin ice right now, it seems. But Rockefeller wasn't stupid. He knew that the monetary system eventually was gonna fail, leave him holding a bag of worthless cash and he said to him, I, I don't know, I can't say he said this to himself. I'm paraphrasing for him. Well, then let's go for the resources themselves. Let's get the resources out of the hands of the people and to my hands. And if I have the resources, it doesn't matter what kind of financial system is in place, whether it's buffalo chips or whether it's Bitcoin. I will, ha- I will be king of the hill if I have the resources, right, and that's what this has been. Starting right there in 1973 is the most massive, gigantic property grab the world has ever seen. And we see evidence of this all over the planet today. Tom can comment on this. Yeah, well, it's you know you
2: you put the uh, the real name on sustainable development. Uh, sustainable development sounds so innocent, and well, we're just just trying to protect the environment. And when you uh, you know started teaching us all about technocracy, uh, you put the real name on it, and that's exactly it. Uh, sustainable development, and environmental movement, uh, climate change—all that are all excuses for putting these property these uh, policies in place. And uh, they're, they're doing that to tug at our heartstrings. I've had him say so many times to me, it doesn't matter how many rights you think you have. If you don't have a planet to stand on and people grab that and go, golly, we've got it. It's just like the people standing there behind you in line when you don't have a mask on and they're all upset because you're not wearing the mask. Then uh, it's the same thing about if you don't care about the planet and uh, you've got to stop the industry that you're running. You've got to stop uh, your transportation. You've got to you've got to conform to all of this. It's all the exact same uh, uh, tactic, and uh, they are moving very rapidly now to uh, really rush in and 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 put that all in place. Now we call it the Green New Deal, and we're seeing the Green New Deal. Uh, being rushed into place and i've I've intercepted a whole bunch of i know you've seen these too, pat the um uh, the messages coming from them, the reports the plans where uh, they are now meeting with leaders and so forth uh one of one of the uh things they've come up with is that we've got to flatten the climate curve they're using all the tactics that they're learning from this pandemic of how to subjugate the people uh to use it. Uh, to put the Green New Deal and put the literally technocracy into place. Yep.
0: Yeah, I'd like to delve in uh, to all of this a little bit more, especially in terms of this connection between the elite and technocracy, then connecting that with Agenda 21 and this overall resource grab. Because, you know, when I was in school, I was taught that the elite are capitalists. And that the communists are the ones who are fighting for this more equitable concept, this idea that, you know, the people own the means of production, not the elite. And yet, uh, as I've gotten older and I've read more deeply into this history, uh, like you were saying, Patrick, the elite are the ones who are continuously funding these um, apparently communist ideas or this idea of uh, technocracy, which is essentially another word for a kind of centralized economy or centralized economic control, Um, because so many people and then even like if you read the Agenda 21 document and then touching on what you were just saying, Tom, is that the jargon that they're using makes it sound like it's it's great. It is like a utopian vision. We're all going to live. It's going to be a one world culture where everybody loves everybody else and everybody you, you know works and and receives according accordingly, and we're all equal and it's you know it, it paints a beautiful picture and yet then you kind of look a little bit closer, just as you were describing a second ago, Patrick, but doesn't this mean that a handful of people end up controlling all of the resources, like what's really going on and and so what is this connection it's like um people are just so fooled, I think, into thinking that the rich are capitalists um when in fact. What we continually see is the wealthy are funding these,
1: these uh, ideas behind central planning. Boy, are they. I just put an article up on Technocracy News called The Corporate Technocrats Who Finance Social Justice and Anarchy. And uh, the grand total on this particular article is $454 million. So where do these people get into money to buy a palace of bricks and uh, you know launch this nationwide uh, thing they got going on? Well, here's where it is. Corporate America is actually sponsoring these people. It's, it's just, it's the most incredible thing. Uh, but you've got names, looking down the names of, of just who's on this list Sony Music, Walmart, Nike, uh, Amazon, Facebook, Target, Verizon, United Health, Goldman Sachs, all these people are lathering money onto this, this anarchy movement in America to rip the social fabric of America apart. Say, how can they do that? How can they be this way? Well, listen, Anthony Sutton, years ago, wrote some books, a series of books called Wall Street and, and then there was Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. Then there was Wall Street Wall Street and the rise of Hitler. And he documented down to the last gnat's whisker on how those movements got started with money from the Wall Street establishment and we have the same thing going on here. They're the ones that are calling the shots. I don't know how you stop these people, honestly, but are NGOs, in addition to the, to the corporate world, you've got NGOs like Open Society Foundation that, uh, uh, that's uh, run by the Soros family. They have given millions and millions of dollars to these radical organizations, including Black Lives Matter, including Antifa, it's documented, it's not a myth, it's absolutely factual. And that's taken from the filings at the IRS. And you know, you look at these numbers and you just are these Americans? Are these why are they why are they ripping apart? You see, so you can't explain it any other way. When you look at a Soros, when you look at these companies and you see the technocrats running them, they're allowing the country to be torn apart because they are part of the big scheme. To grab the resources, ultimately. right? It's like, you just, your mind just goes, you know, it, it, one friend said, it boggles the mind, and he goes, boggle, boggle, boggle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just, it well, really <laughs> just takes your mind apart. When you're looking
0: at the mainstream media, it sounds like all of these are just these grassroots movements that are, you know, from a groundswell no. from the people up to fight against the tyranny of the oppressor.
1: No, not a chance. Not a chance. It's orchestrated from the top down, has been from day one. And, uh, you know, these are the great disruptors of society. People like George Soros. He's easy to study because he's got a lot of track record and articles written about him. But these are the great disruptors of society. And they're trying to disrupt it so they can have the, what they've been longing for is the big reset. That's what the World Economic Forum calls it, the big reset. That's what the World Bank calls it. That's what the IMF calls it. That's what the ECB in Europe calls it. The big reset. Tom, that needs to be your next book. <laughs> yeah. Donnie Reese. Well, the, you know, yeah. the amazing reset. reset. Uh, <laughs> but they want to reset. <laughs> the, the amazing thing to- about
2: all this, <laughs> yeah. is, you know, as I watch all this, they continue to send, put out the message that it's the rich capitalists. And it's the rich. uh, uh, All of us are rich on the right. And, uh, you know, I I know you've run into this. We talk out, out against climate change and they say that we are lackeys of big oil. You know, there, there is that website right. called Exxon Secrets that Greenpeace put together, tie, you know, Spiderweb, tying all these right-wing organizations to Exxon money. Oh, the truth of the matter is none of us have ever received any money from Exxon. Maybe a, several years ago, some of the bigger groups did. But the ones who are receiving money from Exxon are Sierra Club and Greenpeace yes. and these groups. Now, I ask you, is Sierra Club a lackey of big oil because they're getting money from them? You know, what we've really seen happen here is uh, what we call green mail, like blackmail, that they have scared these corporations to death. And they, uh, they won't speak out against all of this. And now what really concerns me is I'm, uh, just in recent times here, I'm seeing how anybody who said they're working for a company and they say anything that would be construed as a right-wing thought They're fired. They're thrown out. They're ostracized, and Mm -hmm. uh, they can't be in there. And and all those corporations you just named off, Pat, Mm -hmm. are the ones doing that. Nike and places like that. That that uh, you're not allowed to have any other thought than what we tell you. You have to have, and that's what we're seeing happen right now.
1: That's by the way. That's evidence of the extension of property rights Mm -hmm. being chipped away. Do you have the right Mm -hmm. to your own thinking processes? to your own thoughts, to your own opinions, to your own beliefs or religious beliefs, not anymore. They say, you can't think anyway except what we think and we will tell you what to think. Mm-hmm. If you don't think our way, we will cancel you. And look at all the people that have lost their jobs over stupid, stupid things. The lies are ruined because they said the wrong word or they thought the wrong thing and now, the BLM and Antifa mobs are saying silence is violence. So if you say nothing, if you say, I'm just not going to keep my mouth shut, man, I'm not going to say nothing to nobody. I don't want to get in any trouble. Right. When, they, when they see your silence on an issue, silence is violence. And we're coming after you because you are not speaking out the way we want you to speak out. Uh, crazy and and another way that they're
2: they're doing this the National Cattlemen's Beef Association uh, when I started writing some articles really exposing what is happening to the beef industry that is now literally under the control of the World Wildlife Fund which advocates ending beef consumption and when I started writing these articles the NCBA wrote. I think the wimpiest article I have ever seen in my life. It was, it was titled, why sustainable? And, and the, the author of this, one of their leaders said the, uh, well, you know, consumers are starting to ask questions about how their uh, beef is processed and where it comes from. And um, organizations like the world wildlife fund have a lot of influence and so we need to join that
1: discussion. And,
2: uh, well the truth of the matter is that these organizations the uh, World Wildlife Fund and so forth, or the National Cattle and Beef Association uh, all these different corporations that have not uh, spoken out, they've never stood up to uh, Home Depot is another one. McDonald's is another one. they've been beaten to a pulp by these groups like this, and uh, they're afraid. To speak out now and so you know here we are and as you say that our, our ability to speak out is being destroyed by the very corporations the very organizations that are supposed to protect uh, people like the cattlemen and you know so yeah oh,
1: right. I've noticed something based on your focus on the beef industry and I come out of the beef industry originally myself as a, as, a, as a young person so I have some some sympathy for the whole thing some empathy <clears throat> but isn't it interesting that that um, that m- many of the companies that, that are controlling the beef industry now also are investors in Beyond B- Beyond Meat, which is a fake meat uh, company. And Bill and, Gates, and Bill, Gates. <laughs> <laughs> and Bill Gates is part of that too. And they yeah. are they are working on on yeah. replacing the beef industry with fake lab grown meat. And isn't it interesting that during the pandemic, the only companies that had petitions to stop their operation were the meatpacking plants. Yeah. Not Walmart. Oh, Walmart never yep. had any, any problem. Not Target. Target never had any problem. But it was the meatpacking industry. Oh, my gosh. You know, they the. There's outbreak at this plant an outbreak at that plant, and there's something about the meat. It's you know
0: Yeah, the Wiley virus strikes only meat packing plants, <laughs> but not Walmarts or Amazon workers. Something
1: fishy <laughs> yeah. going on here. Oh, I should say something yeah. beefy going on. I don't know. Right. Something rotten is going on here with the meat packing industry. They're piggybacking on the pandemic issue to get rid, this has been a long goal of the United Nations to get rid of, of beef everywhere. Red meat, forget it. They want you to eat bugs. They want you to eat insects, ground up crickets, you know, in your shake. It's going to be soil and green meat before meat. long. So, yeah. So yeah. here they are well, shutting down the meat, the meat packing plants. Yeah. Well, what they did with the World Wildlife Fund
2: was they put together this, uh, this beef, uh, sustainable beef round table and on this round table are those packing companies they have created a cartel of about four packing companies Cargill Tysons one called JBS one called National and they have created a uh, you know they create they they have the market the cattlemen don't have the market they have to bring their cattle to market to these guys and they now control the market uh, one of the positive things that I've seen happen out of us—I I know I've been working with these cattlemen who have who have been trying to expose this and show what's happened. Well, that sudden beef shortage we have, of what you were describing there, Pat—you know, the, the, the pandemic—really uh, uh, showed the problem. And now there are some independent packers that are beginning to uh, to. You know fill in the gap and and get some things to product and that would never have happened uh, Without this, you know, what you know that Thing that happened there as you're you're describing so uh, There are some positive things in these things. There are some people fighting back, but that's that just showed you the control of the Whole industry right there and the World Wildlife Fund is right in control of it. So
0: we did a we just did a roundtable that included G. Edward Griffin and had a bit of a discussion about this uh, cartel system, the central banking system. You're talking about, you know, the, the meat industry, but it's also the media, the pharmaceutical companies, the, the central bankers. Um, and it's just kind of it's reminding me of what I, I read, Patrick, in, in your book about defining the enemy, from Sun Tzu's classic, of course, where we have to know what we're up against, and it is this cartel. It's, a, it's an energy cartel, uh, the oil cartel, but also food. Food is the energy for human resources, right, <laughs> which is how they look at, at us. You know, these these technocrats from on high are looking at the general population. I mean... You know, some would call us useless eaters. They use the uh, slightly nicer term human resources, but it's still, it's it's a methodology of control. Um, and I think that, yeah, this elite class are the ones that are controlling this cartel. And they're the ones that want to implement a, a technocracy, this technocracy based on this kind of pseudoscientific knowledge, which is really using the idea of science as a control mechanism to
1: to nab the resources. Um, when I just when I discovered the technocracy study course written in 1934, it's kind of their Bible of the day. <clears throat> I wasn't shocked by this, but I was. My eyes were wide open. I have to say, um, their view of humankind was so low that they they and that was during the day of you know Pavlov's experiment with dogs and stuff like that. Right, you know, they Skinner. had this whole. Yeah, BF Skinner. They had this whole idea that people are just animals. So, you know, you can condition them to do whatever you want to do. And by the time I was done reading all of this Technocracy Study course, about 240 pages, the thought hit me that from their perspective, where they sat writing the book, they looked at us, the people, the citizens in their technate, as nothing more than cattle in a giant feedlot. And if you've ever seen a giant feedlot, I know up in California, you've got some on the mm. highway. You can still see from the highway. <laughs> yeah, up there. you can smell them. That's for sure. <laughs> you sure smell them. And you look at you look at the cattle in a feedlot, and you think, you know, say moo as you drive by. But that's how they viewed people. They were, you know, they saw the whole herd as something to be managed, to be cut, to be moved this way and that way, and poked and shot and branded and tagged and uh tom you did a talk one time i remember where you say i will not be numbered punched stapled whatever and this is how they view us that we should just go along with this and of course we will because they're the scientists and we're just the cattle Mm -hmm. and that we could be satisfied they'll bring their our food to us and truck and put it in the troughs you know as the cattle come over and eat some food and then another one takes his place and if they get sick, they get vaccinated and they get shot with whatever. And if they uh, don't like the way they're growing, why they come out and they whack off their gonads and you know whatever they do. The cattle cannot resist. They figured the people would not resist them either. It's, it's just an incredible attitude that they would think that we, we would just somehow bow our knee to them let them do whatever they want to do to us. So that's fine. Do it to me. I, I love it. I'll take it all. You know, give it, give it all to me. And people are not like that, especially Americans. Americans rebel at that, even though we're kind of been well, we're getting in the water along yeah, the way, right? When they get right down to it, even the people in Chaz, Chad shop or whatever it is up there in Seattle, even those people that are inside <laughs> that now, are realizing what a horrible mistake they've made, but they can't get out of it. They, they're committed, but they're dying. They have to put up a sign on the outside of the thing, please send food, we're starving in here. Yeah, <laughs> are you, well, uh, and sunglasses. And sunglasses, <laughs> I know. And I, I love the story where truckers have said now, that uh, trucking industry has said, we will not deliver anything to cities who defund the police period. Goodbye. And they're not going in. Those cities are going to starve if they defund the police because the truckers aren't going in there. They can't be defended or protected.
2: Well, you know, one of of the things when you look at the, the map of the perfect sustainable city, is that they have a little line outside of the area where the city will grow their own food. All the resources we need in this community will all come from right here. There will be no more truckers shipping anything in because we're going to have it all right here. Now, usually what I'll say at this point is you like bananas, kiss them goodbye, because they aren't going to grow in your community. Uh, you know, all, th- This is, like you're saying, the control of everything that we eat. And and how we do it. And, of course, what are they asking for there in, in that little area in Seattle? They want vegan food that uh, has to be that you don't don't send us any hamburgers in here. This isn't going to help us uh, have to have those those plant ones. And uh, but that, that mindset continues. They could be starving to death and they'll say, oh, no, I can't eat anything with a face on it. You know, <laughs> so right. it's uh, it's the mindset. Exactly what you're saying.
0: Well, let's get into this because in the, I mean, you're reading these documents. Let's read, if you read um, the Agenda 21 document, it sounds pretty flowery. Like, hey, we're going to be self-sustaining. The cities are going to be self-sustaining. We can provide our own food, you know, from the local area. We're going to manufacture all of our goods and services in the local area or in the region as things are divided up into regions. Um, And yet it's like, so, well, so the people that are advocating for this, because when you read it, you know, Patrick, they're not saying, oh, this is a, a social Darwinian eugenics program. You know, <laughs> they're saying this is what we're doing is a sustainable development program for the good of humanity. And you read the documents and you say, well, this appears anti-corporate. It's it's not this, uh, you know, centralized corporate means of production where everything's got to be manufactured in one big corporate facility and then shipped everywhere. This is where the local community is going to be manufacturing everything in the sustainable fashion. And that's what the documents say. And yet, as we've already kind of discussed a bit, you know, you see that it's the corporations that are driving all of this because they're actually trying to to suck up all of them, to centralize the means of production, all of them into their own hands. Um, so can you kind of dive into that a little bit, Tom, how there is this flowery language that sounds so anti-corporate and these people, you know, can point to it and go how great this would be. Um, but then how it's really maybe a a setup and how these corporate actors are the very ones that are going to be then in charge of all of this at the end of the day.
2: Well, as we've just described, these these corporations are piling money into these programs and and putting these in place. One of the things that uh, under the whole Agenda 21 scheme, uh, the the creation of public-private partnerships, and what that means is that corporations who go along with that, who who join these public-private partnerships, they get all kind of goodies. They get to go to the front of the line for uh, where they can set put their stores. They get uh, tax breaks. They get to use government to create uh, uh, policies that will put their competition out of business. And so, you know, th- there can be no... Uh, of, you know, a, a partnership between government and, and private. The point here is, you know, the way we're set up is for government to protect the, 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 the private company's ability to exist and to operate without interference. But But still, they have to compete with their competition. They have to do a service. They have to have a better product. But under this, they don't. And what I've been experiencing with corporations now, Walmart, I'm very familiar with one, uh, but other ones are doing this as well. They the employees there are treated just like numbers. Uh, I, uh, the, the management hardly even knows who their employees are. And so talk about cattle. They're just there. And if you've got a you know, I always was taught when you build a business that you really take care of your people and they'll take care of you. You are concerned about what they do and how they operate and, and, and their jobs. You're also concerned about their personal lives and if they mm-hmm. have a, a crisis on their hands that they've got to take care of. Not today. Well, you didn't show up. There you are. You're out. And, uh, you know, this sort of thing. It's just, they're just not people.
0: I think so, we've we got to make a distinction, know. too, because so often this gets lumped up together as the free market is corporations plus uh, mom and pop's and this is not the case especially not in terms of this of these public private partnerships these corporations receive outrageous benefits from the government that that mom and pops don't get that that even medium sized family owned incorporated businesses you know don't get um and so that is exactly what you're seeing these city planners come in but they're giving tax breaks to Starbucks and they're and they're making it extremely difficult for you know, me to be able to show up, rent a little place on the street corner and start up a
2: coffee shop. so yeah it's almost become impossible. And one of the things that's happening now, uh, you know we, we hear all this concern now for minorities and and all this these racist attacks and so forth. But what's happening with these planners and these NGO organizations that are behind these planners, uh, let's you know, for example, they'll take an area of town, and they they're sitting in their back rooms mapping out what's going to happen in that area of town. Oh, look at these grandiose plans. We're going to have uh, a new, shiny, spanking, clean, sparkling uh, new neighborhood there. Well, what they completely ignore is in that neighborhood, there are minorities who own their homes. There are minorities who own little small businesses, a restaurant, a laundry, what, what, may, what it may be. And when they come in, with, now they rebuild it. Do they have that little mom and pop shop back in there as the restaurant? No. They've got the corporations that have come in with their mm-hmm. big, sparkling new places. What happens to the people who were living there? They now, in many cases, have no choice but to go on public assistance and become a ward of the state and uh, live in their public housing because they can't afford to live in the neighborhood they used to live in. Their property rights are gone. Their free enterprise is gone. Their hope is gone. And that is the real bottom line of sustainable
1: development, Agenda 21. Yes. One of the big things, uh, speaking of public-private partnerships, is uh, the, the Tax Act that was passed and, uh, passed by Congress and signed by President Trump uh, that authorized enterprise zones to be established across America uh, allowed state governors to uh, specify under, supposedly underserved areas in their state where rich people who were selling their stock, like people like the, the Jeff Bezos of the world and the Elon Musk or whatever, could sell their stock and reinvest it into these enterprise zones with no tax consequences. They didn't have to pay any taxes whatsoever. They could defer right. them at least six years and possibly permanently, if they left the investments there and let them roll, they could they could eventually escape taxes altogether. This was a windfall for those super rich tech companies like the you know like the Googles and whatever of the world. That it amassed incredible fortunes, billions of dollars of fortunes that money got landlocked because they couldn't afford to sell it. It would drive their income tax up to like, you know, the top, top, top bracket. So the enterprise zones now has been, there's 9,000, over 9,000 across the country, I think about 9,500 now. This has opened up uh, an opportunity for structured Public-private partnerships because that's the only way you can invest money into the enterprise zone. You have to have a managing partner and so these companies these people have this money saying man I'm gonna set up my own little limited partnership here or whatever and I'm gonna invest money in and they can invest it in anything They want including smart city technology including stack and Packham housing including all kinds of development that drives the locals out of the uh, out of it altogether out of the area and The the governors have not designated, according to the spirit of the law, they have included many prime real estate projects within cities where real estate is just sky high. Once a zone is dedicated, the investors have swooped in with millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to invest in projects that never, ever, ever would have been allowed in those particular areas. This has been an underreported thing, but it's been the mass, the, uh, the masticizing of the concept of public-private partnerships. Now it's embedded; it's structurally embedded in our entire economic system. In every city, virtually in America now, at certainly every state and every county, it's absolutely incredible to see the misuse and the disuse of capital. In these areas, they have no business being there. They're not urban planners, but they're going in and they're just trashing areas that otherwise were livable for the people who were there.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And not just the. And isn't it
2: interesting that that uh, you know, as we're talking about this pandemic and how this thing has affected all of us, that the one target, the place where real crisis is taking place, is in those small mom and pop shops. That are not allowed to open, and so we're right. seeing a real crush of those businesses. Uh, now, is that a pandemic, or is that the uh, the overall plan? And this is just a tool to
1: to make that happen. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, mean, I would are, agree with the latter statement, by the way. Right. It's, it's, it's playing that way from the get-go.
0: We're watching a massive suck from you know, the middle and upper middle class who are trying to work these, these mom and pop or mid-sized businesses. These, these are the businesses that are going under. Uh, I think the headline was 40% of small businesses in New York City have had to close down. Well, who's replacing them except for Amazon and Walmart that have been allowed to crank through this whole thing? I mean, you know, no question. This is billions and billions of dollars, you know, that just going up back up to the into that elite cartel that we were discussing. You guys want to talk, uh, touch a little bit about regulation, too. I know uh, in uh, Technocracy Rising, Patrick, you mentioned how not just these tax breaks that are given to these corporations in order to, you know, uh, be able to move into these redevelopment zones but um also getting away from a, a common law based on private property rights now and then these onerous regulations are now the new model which also prevent the mom and pops by just making it expensive these barriers to entry to get into the any industry when you have to comply with all of these lists of regulations and then the other aspect to it of course i think the corporations are looking to have the same regulations worldwide because it's such a, a you know a pain in the butt for them to have oh, a different yeah, yeah. regulation in this state and that state, or this country and that country. So you yeah. guys wanna discuss
1: that a bit? <laughs> I'll, throw, I'll throw one thing out and that is regulations obviously are the technocrats' dream. Regulations are not law, That's, they're not statutes. Uh, sometimes uh, the way it's supposed to work is that Congress will create a statute and it'll get signed through the legislative process and so on that will give authority to agencies of the government to create regulations that support that law. <clears throat> well, in technocracy's mind, regulations are just, they just exist, a priori. They can do them. They just make up a regulation and that's it. Well, that's a regulation. Well, how do you, you know, who told you to do that? Well, I, I don't know, somebody up above said that's it. And regulations have entrapped us and ensnared us around the country. But now, I didn't see this when I wrote my book, but now, because it wasn't there, but now there's something brand new If you think that regulations was a bastardization and a degradation of the rule of law, now it's guidelines. Mm -hmm. It's not even regulations anymore. We have guidelines. The CDC has issued guidelines on how a business is allowed to reopen its doors. No regulations, no law, just guidelines. Right. If you don't follow the guidelines, you know what's going to happen to you, Buster. This has gone so far. The rule of law is being shattered, just shattered like a pane of glass that had a big rock thrown through it all over our country. And it's like guidelines? Seriously? We're supposed to obey some technocrats' guidelines because they say it's science behind it after all and we have to obey it? I won't say what I'm thinking. Wouldn't be appropriate for public audience. I, well, <laughs> I, <stop. laughs> I have an example.
0: <laughs> I have an example in my own community where a restaurant was like, screw this, I don't care about masks. I and you know, I'm gonna go ahead and open up and not follow the guidelines. And man, I mean the backlash, first of all, all the people and you kind of you had a you did talk about in the book this this like shaming people not even having to follow the laws but having it set up to where it's okay to shame people who aren't following the guidelines so you know a a certain percentage of the population around here shamed these guys and then the board of supervisors comes in and says well now we're going to have to figure out some kind of of penalization but there really wasn't even an enforcement mechanism before it's just like you're saying it's like they can just start coming out with guidelines we had guidelines for reopening here in California, right? <laughs> Which we're like, well, bars can open up now, but they have to close at midnight. It's like, well, does the virus spread after midnight? I mean, how is that a scientific guideline? But everybody's got to, oh, what are the guidelines? We got to follow the guidelines. And I just think about even the hours that the, you know, the board of supervisors or the county health officials are spending pouring over these guidelines and implementing them all when they're all, they seem so arbitrary. It's just, it's unbelievable. And this is now being treated as the law of the land.
1: (laughs) It is, it has nothing to do with the law of the land. Absolutely nothing. There was another related concept to this, by the way, called collaboration. And I know Tom has seen a ton of this. Michael Kaufman, late Michael Kaufman, also uh, talked about this collaboration process. There's a new political process where a county or some some agency of of the government of the people calls for a collaboration, To do something like uh, in the case of uh, blowing up a dam or something or moving a dam They they call for a collaboration So once a collaboration has been called for they invite stakeholders to the table and they might invite an indian tribe maybe the sierra club maybe uh, Somebody else from a business in the chamber of commerce or something like that and they bring these non-elected unaccountable uh, Whatever they are to the Mm -hmm. table as stakeholders in a collaboration, the way it's been set up across the country, the collaboration members, the stakeholders, end up taking a vote on whatever it is they decide to do. They take a vote, just like a simple democratic vote, and if, if what they want to do passes the vote, they simply declare that that's the law and that's the way it's going to be. This collaboration idea is so Unconstitutional! I can't even discuss it. It is just outrageous. When you see it in operation, you say, "What are you renegades doing?" (laughs) Yes, like you don't even belong. You don't even have the right to meet, much less make policy decisions of a major sort for people in a given area. But this is kind of the mentality now. This is the new law. This is the new the new normal for the what they call the rule of law. Let's make it up as we go. Let's make, the, let's make the rules up. Let's make the laws up as we go. And when we decide what you're going to do in this situation, you're going to do it. Having um, been close, by the way. And then, and then when,
2: when, when they, they have that vote of those few chosen stakeholders and they vote to do this, then they announce the community
1: has decided. Yes. Like we're all
2: in this together. Yes. Yeah.
1: It's yeah. a con job. Yeah. It's just an absolute scam. But you can't tell them that. And if you try and badmouth them, you know, you get again, you get canceled. The cancel culture starts coming after you.
0: Well, and they say that it's (laughs) science-backed. They say, well, we had a few scientists on this panel. It's science-backed. And this is what's best for the community. And then everybody, it's uh, this is something that's been kind of it's it's striking to me is how well they do this job of tugging at people's heartstrings they really don't have the science or the scientific evidence, or if it is, it's kind of shady or it's unproven. I mean, you know, wearing face masks or sheltering in place, have the, was there a controlled study that shows just exactly how much sheltering in place slows uh, viral spread? I mean, you know, no, they're just assumptions that scientists may have made that this might work, um, and yet they're able to impose it on us through these anti-democratic means, like they can make these choices. The technocrats can make this, these choices. It's so fascinating. I mean, you can just see, and and Patrick, you talked about how the technocracy isn't political. It transcends politics. We're not having a political discussion. These guys just think we're scientists. This is correct. They can impose it on the rest of us. But then they've, it's like, and Tom, maybe you can speak to this, the way they've they've integrated this technocratic thinking into Agenda 21 and then implemented it behind closed doors and completely circumventing the political process, like just ignoring it. Like, well, the democracy is too much of a pain. We don't want to have to convince the people to vote for this. So we're just going to make these deals in these back rooms through these collaborations. And then we're going to approach the city governments in back rooms, and we're going to offer them all this grant money. You know, if they do what we say and they jump all over it and yet none of it is is democratic. None of it is according to the Constitution. And it's like almost like just ignoring the Constitution. Maybe it'll just go away. You know, (laughs) we don't need that democracy to do this.
2: Yeah. Well, one of the one of the things that they have done all these years, we've been fighting Agenda 21 and trying to explain to people what it was and how it operates and so forth. they, they keep uh, attacking me through the Southern Poverty Law Center, four different reports. And, uh, and they say, Tom DeWeese has taken this innocuous document that is just a suggestion. It doesn't have any enforcement capability in it. And it's just a suggestion if a community wants to do it. What they leave out is the year after Agenda 21 was introduced in 1992, in 1993, Bill Clinton became president. One of the things he did was issue an executive order to create the President's Council on Sustainable Development. The purpose of that council was to take the suggestions of Agenda 21 and make them policy through the American government system. Every single agency in the federal government uh, had representatives pretty much on that council, along with these NGO groups, Sierra Club, Nature Conservancy, and others that helped write Agenda 21 at the UN level in the first place, and they had corporations on there representing. Now, these NGO groups wrote grant programs for all of these different agencies, and in there, they, they're uh, uh, small print in there that. Uh, you're kind of breaking up on us, Tom. And when we, we elect new city councilmen, county commissioners, is we send them off to these national organizations.
0: Well, it looks like we lost Tom, having a little bit of a bad connection there. We'll uh, continue the conversation here with Patrick for a bit and see what we can do about getting Tom to come back.
1: While, uh, while he's working on that, I had queued up these sustainable development goals uh, from the 2030 agenda meeting a few years ago. And <clears throat> you mentioned the sustainable development goals, how good they sound from the top down, race, poverty, everywhere, You know, the jobs for everyone with dignity, and all that kind of stuff. It sounds like utopia. Mm-hmm. You don't get the details until you get down into uh, the goals. In fact, goal number 12 is where you first hit the major uh, roadblock. Goal number 12 is, says, ensure sustainable consumption and production patterns. Now, that's, that's the statement, the mini-statement of the goal. But uh, point 12.2, and there's only 17 goals, okay? This is goal number 12. 12.2 says, by 2030, achieve the sustainable management and efficient use of natural resources. That's implied all natural resources around the world. They want to control it. Now, down a little bit further in goal number 13, which uh, says, uh, as many statement is, uh, take urgent action to combat climate change and its impacts. Uh, I'm sorry, I got to go to goal number 14. Goal number 14 is conserve and sustainably use the ocean seas marine resources for sustainable development. So they want control of all the land-based resources, and they want control of all the ocean and water based resources of the planet as well what's left the air oh they got that covered too <laughs> because of global warming they want to take all the carbon out of the air so that we just you know don't heat the planet up this the the details are always where the teeth are hidden right yeah we absolutely down- down to goal number twelve and goal number fourteen. Answer nobody. They get stuck on the on the ones at the top that promise uh, literally promise nirvana. And as as I'm as I'm looking at these, uh, let me read the first uh, two or three goals. Goal one: end poverty in all its forms everywhere. Goal two: end hunger, achieve food security, and and improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. Goal three: ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all. At all ages, goal four and ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. And these, who could disagree with that? Nobody. And so, by the time you get down to, you know, goal number ten, where it says reduce inequality within and among countries, I mean, you're still agreeing. And you just stop reading. And so nobody really has read down into the bottom of these goals to find out well, what do we have to pay for all this? What's the pay? What's the price that mm. we have to do to get these? There's no free lunch. We have to pay something. Well, what you have to pay is you have to give up the right to all the resources in the water and all the resources on the land and let us manage them efficiently and thereby you will be managed efficiently as well. And we will squeeze the maximum value out of the resources of the world. And you know, if we have to cut back on your diet and cut you back to a twelve hundred calorie a day diet, well, uh, you know, or feed you insects. Well, that's just you know, that's your that's the part you have to play. So suck it up. <laughs> you
0: know? I think the and the in the fine print is where a lot of this. Uh, <laughs> You know, a a lot of the way I think they get away with the scientism as well. And this was part of the conversation that I wanted to have with you because you wrote about this in the book. Uh, Like, what's the difference between actual science and scientism? And I'm finding, I mean, you know, uh, because I started doing research into the vaccine thing, but now with the coronavirus thing, reading a lot of scientific papers. Yeah. You'll get a scientific paper that says one thing, but you know, it sources 10 different papers. And if you really want to know the science, you have to read all 10 of the sources too. You can't just read You know, what's I I find it in journalism, too, like, uh, you know, you'll read the headline and the headline sometimes doesn't even have anything to do with what's in the body of the work. And then the narrative of the work won't have anything to do. If you read the source material, you get a totally different narrative. You'll be like, what? How did this journalist get this conclusion (laughs) from these sources? And I'm seeing the same thing when it comes to science. It's so easy to get away with, uh, you know, a science, a quote, unquote, scientific conclusion. Um, even if you quote sources you're quoting sources that maybe the experiments didn't quite reach the same conclusions that you're concluding in the narrative of the paper that you finally published but then that paper is the one that says hey masks work for everybody there was a headline the other day new study comes out if 100% of people wear masks we can stop the second wave well like where where's the science that really proves that you know um, so how is it that this idea what is this idea of scientism and and how is it that this kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's this pseudo-scientific mythology, actually, but it's justified
1: using the scientific process. Yes, uh, sci- scientism is a religion, first off. It has the word science in it, but it's a, it started as a religion. <clears throat> the person, the philosopher that originally coined the phrase and, and the doctrines behind it was a uh, French philosopher in the early 1800s by the name of Henri de Saint-Simon. And he promoted a priesthood of engineers and scientists to administer society based on science. And he said that scientists were superior to all other men because they're able to predict the future, which is not a true statement at all. But this is where it started. And scientism has matured over the decades and centuries now uh, to be what it is today. It is flat out a religious system that has priesthood, a priesthood. I'm not sure we could identify a high priest, but it has a priesthood mm-hmm. uh, of scientists and engineers who interpret what the oracle of science has to say. And the reason they need interpreters is because we're too dumb uh, by their standards to understand the science that they're drawing from. They have the PhDs, they're the bright ones. We're just sheep. We're just the cattle in the feedlot. And so They go and listen very carefully to the oracle of science and then come down the mountain and say, science says, and you better Mm. obey, because we, the priesthood, have heard science say, and this is what science says. You don't have an idea what science really said at all. They're just saying, this is what science said. So we see, if you look back in in literature, uh, you can look up a guy, uh, for instance, um, by the name of C.S. Lewis. Who wrote extensively, he was a a Christian apologist, philosopher in the last century. He wrote extensively about scientism. And he defined it basically just in the terms that, uh, that I'm saying here. Scientism believes that there's it's impossible to discover truth outside of science. So any method of discovering truth is discarded if it's not science. That means you throw out the Bible, you throw out philosophy in general. Because mm-hmm. philosophy can come up with stuff that doesn't have science behind it, and any other method of arriving at the "quote unquote" reality about the world, about life, and so on, all of those systems are discarded by by scientism. And scientism says if if we can't determine it in science, it does not exist. This is so full of logical fallacies; not even funny. For those who are married, listening to this broadcast, I dare you to go home and tell your wife, "Well, honey." Um, Science has never really been able to demonstrate what love is. I mean, we have this concept, we call it love, but there's not, no science behind it. So can we just drop that whole thing about, you know, I love you sort of thing? You just see what's going to happen to you. Right. If you try to pull that on your wife, it ain't going to work. <laughs> but there, there are lots of things outside science that can't be demonstrated by the lab, by the, you know, by a test tube and When you just throw those things out you end up with a system that all of a sudden turns very ugly very quickly And we're seeing snippets of that today Where science says this and science says that people like fauci who have flip flopped uh, More than the most adept politician Well, you should wear face masks one day. No, no now you don't need to wear it Well, I lied back then because we were short on uh, short on supply you can't trust anything this guy says at this point. He right. says whatever's in his brain. But he always has his white coat on with his pocket protector, and he's sitting with his arms like this. Yeah. And looking at his nose. You know, he says, I'm a scientist. You, you can't question what I have to say because I am a Ph.D. And this is nonsense. This is a con. It's for scans, as far as I'm concerned. There's plenty of truth in the world. It has nothing to do with science whatsoever.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Science, first of all, is a process. And from, you know, my experience, uh, it really requires a a huge amount of open-mindedness. You have to be able to say, oh, you know, I had this belief, but today I was presented with new information. And so I'm willing to change my belief. Um, But this isn't really what's presented to people. It's like, oh, they're presented. It's almost like being presented with the Ten Commandments. You know, be, this is what everybody believes, and this doesn't change. And, and they and they and they follow it. And it's so interesting how. I think you're right, as you say, it's a religion where people are. It's comforting to believe that you've discovered the truth. It's difficult to live life knowing that you don't have all the answers. You know, <laughs> and we're just doing the best that we can. And I think people um, easily fall for this if controlling personalities uh, tell you, we know the science, this is the truth, just follow me and everything will be fine. And that's exactly what we're seeing. It's it's a very cult-like behavior, and it's not real science. I mean, that's just what's so frustrating to me to try to get into conversations with people, and they're just like, well, science says this, and it's like, well... No, it doesn't. Here's uh, some peer-reviewed science that says one thing. Here's some scientists right. that are saying the opposite. We're having a conversation like adults here, but we don't really know exactly what the truth is. We're just trying to do the best we can, and science is a good tool. So it's just fascinating to see how they're using science as a, almost like an, a, an excuse or a control
1: mechanism to get what they want. It, it, it is, and, and let's bring the cancel culture into this part of the discussion as well, because the majority of scientists and engineers in the world are not into scientism. They have not bought into the idea that they are you know that they, they experience that religious thing and no, there's no truth outside of science. <clears throat> and we need to be fair to them, they're the ones who try to stand up and say, no no, no, that's what that guy's saying over there's not right. But the scientism crowd who are also also other PhDs, maybe, you know, say that they're 10% of the population of scientists and engineers. That 10% turns around and ridicules, shames, and neutralizes, and just completely defrocks those legitimate scientists who are trying to tell the true story. And they just get, they get canceled for one, you know, however they go after them, they they go after their grants, they go after their university status, whatever, they get them fired, um, they get their pay, they won't let their papers be published, and they just wipe them out. And in other words, within science itself, you have this big war going on with the legitimate scientists and those that are into scientism, and the ones that are into scientism have not only bastardized science, but they bought the religious proposition that They and they alone are the only ones to have the truth and you're not allowed to debate anything else And that's what they've done to science
0: this is a, another aspect to this where these technocratic controllers or the, this elite that is using technocracy as a controlling mechanism typically these guys are the ones funding the science. So how easy is it to manipulate the narrative if you're the ones that have the millions and millions of dollars just like I compare it to journalism because journalism or even philosophy is you know an attempt to discover the truth through research. So you know I can uh, but if you're getting paid you know, you're gonna have confirmation bias. If you're getting paid, well, you have a $10 million grant to find out that, you know, masks work for coronavirus. And if you find out that masks do work, we'll give you another $10 million grant to, to come up with another paper. And if you find out that they don't work, you know, you're not gonna get any more money. <laughs> and
1: that's what, that's what happens, that's exactly right. Right. And the money has flowed in from places like the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, the, the Rockefeller University, Rockefeller Medical School, et cetera, et cetera, and you have you have a host of NGOs and foundations that have billions of dollars that are issuing grants to scientists to to you know write certain studies. And they become once they become compromised and whatever. Once they buy into this whole scheme or whatever, they're trapped. They can't get out. And legitimate scientists get marginalized. They get pushed off to the side. Their voices get neutralized. And their story never comes out. A good case in point, uh, by the way, is um, the, the whole body of global warming science that says, oh, we're all going to die within 10 years, which has never happened yet. That's what they say. But there was a group of 30,000 scientists and engineers that, that signed a petition that said, well, we need debate on this topic. You don't have this exclusive truth in your little group over there, at University of East Anglia or wherever it is, You're not the only ones that are experts in this area and we need to have this debate 30,000 people stepped up to the plate scientists and you know people that were qualified to talk about climate Mm -hmm. change and they said They won't let us into their party to, to, To debate the science which is the heartbeat of science anyway is debate and so Here you have maybe uh, a few thousand scientists that have gone rogue over here into scientism, and you've got these 30,000 scientists over here that are saying, wait, 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 no, 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 that's wrong. You know, let the public's got to be, you know, informed here, this is dangerous territory. They never listen to them. They call them kooks. They call them nuts. They call them conspiracy theorists, et cetera. And they basically just, you know, threw the whole baby out with a bathwater and say they got nothing to say. Don't listen to them. They're heretics.
0: It looks like we've got Tom back. Sorry about that, everybody. We uh just had a little connectivity issue there, but he was uh trying to explain to us a little bit about the anti-democratic processes behind Agenda 21. So Tom, do you want to continue on with that?
2: Yeah, as I was saying, the uh uh you know the President's Council of Sustainable Development put in place, put these things in, in place, and we and we send our uh Uh, local elected officials to these international, I mean, to these national meetings, Uh, groups like, uh, you know, the National Mayor's Conference and the uh, National League of Cities, and there's a whole slew of them. We send them to those kinds of meetings, and there they begin to hear uh, the same NGO groups from the podium, giving them the same policies, and they'll even have uh, sample legislation and you know, that that sort of thing. Then they come home and they're met by representatives of those same groups saying, hey, did you get that sample legislation? We've got the money for you too and the grant. It's all right here in a box. Eventually, your elected officials begin to think this is the legitimate uh, form of government. This this is just what everybody's doing. And then one of us walks in and starts to talk to them about uh, some of these policies, and standing behind them are these same NGO groups saying, don't listen to him. the guy's a nut. And that's how we get shut out of these things. And they're not—they're not allowed to hear the other side of it. And uh, of course, there's stuff in their pockets with the uh, with the grant money. That those grant programs then are now dictating to them exactly what kind of policies they have to put in place. I can drive through a city and almost tell you what grants they took to uh, to do certain projects. And. Uh, so you know, step by step, this is how it's being implemented, and this is how they're shutting us out from being able to uh stand up against it.
0: Well, it's amazing what we've seen happening in terms of this technocratic philosophy integrating itself with agenda twenty one and then now moving forward. Um, can we address just for a moment how this is happening now, especially in terms of covid nineteen It seems like Now, one of the things you were mentioning uh, in in Technocracy Rising, Patrick, was that where technocracy has been uh, most implemented was in, um, you know, Nazi Germany, Communist China. Uh, Then as the European Union moved forward, a lot of the concepts were there. Um, And now it seems we're really seeing it coming full force into uh, the United States here. Can you uh, just comment on, on how this movement is now rolling through
1: using COVID as uh, the backdrop for this? I, I, I want to take that trail back to university, uh, uh, a university in uh, London uh, where a professor, uh, Neil Ferguson, an epidemiologist, was the very first computer model that came out Uh, when the pandemic was discovered in China and said that half a million Brits were going to die and 1.2 plus million Americans are going to die. He threw this out into the public space like uh, crying fire in a crowded theater and the world bought it. This particular Imperial College of London was the same organization, totally sustainable development organization. They're very tight with the UN this is the same university that produced any number of uh, faulty climate models that were fed into places like uh, climate extinction, for instance, that use these studies to prove global warming and that we're all going to die. A sustainable university <coughs> using the same faulty computer models they use our climate science, by the same people, all of a sudden come out with a computer model <clears throat> to create the Great Panic of 2020. This had nothing to do with the pandemic. This Neil Ferguson was an ep- epidemiologist. He's a mathematician, for peace sake. He has no medical training whatsoever. And yet, he changed the course of the world. And I only have to ask, okay, we, we know these guys were associated with climate change. We know they're the alarmist of the climate change, whole the whole thing, that drives sustainable development for the United Nations. Now they come out, change horses just a little bit, use the pandemic to achieve the same goals they're trying to achieve with climate change, and the whole world buys it. And I ask the question, who has the power? Who has the influence in the world to shut down the entire global economic system? I know you may realize how much, you know, how big this is. Most people in America don't yet. The entire global economic system was shut down, giving way to places like the World Economic Forum saying, oh, it's time for the big reset, the economic reset. Well, only these technocrats at the United Nations, the World Health Organization, and then CDC got involved, University of Washington got involved. And all of a sudden, it's a huge thing in America and worldwide as well. This whole great panic of 2020 has been managed and manipulated by these technocrats who were hiding behind the white coats. Mm -hmm. It's just exactly what we've been talking about. This This is not just incidental that they shut down the global economic system. The only group in the world that wants to get rid of capitalism and free enterprise is the United Nations, and they are sworn publicly in press releases and press conferences. They are sworn to, to to want to destroy capitalism and free enterprise, in favor of implementing sustainable development, which I contend is historic, same as historic technocracy, a resource based economic system. This is not. This is not what the world bargained for, and nobody very few people at this point have seen this connection between climate change and this pandemic. But I'll tell you, these people, these people don't care which horse they ride. What difference does it make? They're looking at the goal. The goal is to shut down the economic system. Well, they want to do that with climate change. They did we got the green New deal. that would shut that would completely displace capitalism free enterprise. So we got the Green New Deal, and that's in Europe, and it's here, and it's all over the place. But you know what? Even when poor little Greta Thunberg came out, hopped up and down, you know, screamed and cried, and whatever, at the United Nations, said, your your, your house is on fire. You don't care about us young people. Even Greta Thunberg, with all of the youth of the world, could not move the agenda for sustainable development any further because people said, ah, phooey, we're tired of listening to you people. All you just say the same thing all the time. There was nowhere to go with climate change anymore. It wasn't getting the political agenda accomplished, and the 2030 agenda is only 10 years away. They got to get it done. They switch horses. They said, now we're going to use the pandemic, and we're going to use that to achieve our goals of shutting down the global economic system, trashing capitalism for enterprise, And we will use all the stimulus money that comes out of this from the governments of the world to fund the Green New Deal projects, not the reconstruction of capitalism as we know it, not not free market economics as we know it. They're going after the green spending now. And if people don't believe me, all you got to do is just search a few headlines, especially in the European press, you'll find all they're talking about now is using this. To reset the global economic system in favor of sustainable development. This whole thing had nothing to do with the virus. The virus is real. I'm not saying it's not, but it had nothing to do with it. It's all about sustainable development and implementing this new economic system. The great reset.
0: And, Tom, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well
2: I absolutely totally agree and I've been intercepting these uh as Pat has been doing these these uh messages that they've been sending back and forth to themselves uh talking about how we can use the pandemic to uh to move forward and I mean this doesn't just happen I mean you know, the club of rome which was part of the the people that wrote agenda 21 in 92 uh said they're now calling for the green reboot after the pandemic it doesn't get much clearer than that uh the brookings institute the left wing brookings institute uh Put out a report entitled How the Sustainable Development Goals Can Help Cities Focus COVID-19 Recovery on Inclusion, Equity, and Sustainability. Those are the three E's of, 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 of Agenda 21. Uh, equity, sustainability, inclusion, all that is, is uh, all part of that. What really is uh, very concerning to me is the absolute lack of response from the uh... particularly the the uh, republican leadership uh... you know i i i say it way too often that uh... Mitch McConnell spends his life with a puzzled look on his face, doesn't really understand what is happening, and uh, they have allowed this stuff to come in. When when they first introduced the Green New Deal, he laughed and he had that 57 to nothing vote in uh, in the Senate, saying "Ha ha ha!" They didn't even vote for their own bill. And uh, meanwhile, Republicans started saying, "Well, that's a little radical, but we could come up with something a little more reasonable." And Boom! That was the tactic: to get the Republicans on board in their own way, and uh, continuing with the same agenda. And now, as, as Pat said, all of these movements are, are, are heading in a direction to implement the Green New Deal on every level, and particularly they're now focusing on the local level. This is this is my main concern. These uh, they are tra- just as they trained a cadre of people to start these riots. Uh, they have now trained a cadre of uh, other activists to be able to use the legislative movement uh, going into city councils, county commissions, and state legislatures. And so this is um, – and, and we're not seeing any pushback on that. So what I am doing now – I've spent the, the last couple of months working on this – we are putting together a manual. Uh, for local activists, how to organize. What I keep hearing from local activists is, we don't know what to do and they're intimidated because they get in front of these city councilmen and they're they're put down and they're laughed at and they're dismissed. How do they organize? How do they find other people to work with them? How do they recruit more people and what do they do once they've done that? How do they uh, uh, present their presentations, uh, make their points, and uh and move forward. We are putting together a manual on exactly that. Uh and uh Representative Matt Shea out in the state of Washington put together a series of bills for me uh to put in with this that we can teach local uh or, or uh state representatives in, in various legislatures how to do this and how to hook up and and uh uh, network with legislators in other community and other states, and uh, on and on. So these tactics, which we have not had, people look at it and say, that is... It's so hard. I mean, they control everything. Yes, because we have allowed them to do that for the last five decades at least. We have to lay that groundwork and teach how to stand up to them. It's not going to be overnight. One of the major problems with our side is we will go to a meeting, maybe even get 100 people there all riled up about something, and we go in and try to do something about it, and the other side ignores us. And everybody goes home and says, well, that didn't work. I always ask the question, what did you do the next day? Well, nothing, because they didn't pay any attention. There is the problem. This is why we have this problem. And we have got to do that groundwork. But we're going to start these uh, webinars and, and teach this and get this manual together and get it out to activists and begin to help people understand how to fight back so we can stand up to these people on the local level. And what I'm saying, to people is make your own community a freedom pod where you have stood up for private property rights you have stood up for free enterprise, small business owners you have stood up for your right to speak out if you your community then you can create a freedom pod of that community and that can move to the next and to the next that's the way we have to fight back
0: yeah, it's so difficult to find solutions. I mean, even the local activism that I've done, it's amazing how many meetings you go to and then hours and hours worth of work and of course you're not getting paid. And this is the challenging is the most challenging part of it is that we're going up against organizations that are getting paid millions and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, And to to they're sort of these uh, astroturfed organizations that seem like they're grassroots, but they're actually getting paid by these corporate and elite interests. Uh, And for us to do this work on the ground, man, it's it is challenging to be able to go and, and fight against this, especially with the corporate media of course, that uh, is just not actually presenting the truth and you don't get an opportunity to get there and present the truth because they're having conversations uh, with other technocrats um, promoting all the same thing as a unified front. So, I I mean, I just personally understand the challenge and and I thank you for those efforts to educate grassroots people about how to do it more effectively. Patrick, you talked about this concept of misprision In your book, and I thought that was interesting—that you can actually sue people if you can discover that they're not following uh, the the system of law or not adhering to the Constitution. You can actually, you know, you can actually kind of threaten them because I think we have to—we do have to use these legal tools to push a little bit harder. I don't think we can go to these meetings uh, and have that kind of effect. Can you describe um, what that is for the audience?
1: Well I can the the legal document uh, that you're referring to misprision of treason um, is not, it's not a, a legal principle that has had great success, I have to say uh, over the decades but it is uh, it is on the books and it is a legitimate tactic to use mm-hmm. and basically what it says is when you when you uh, issue a misprision of treason to uh, a public official, uh, you have to declare what you're what you're issuing. What's the act? What's the action that they're doing that you think is wrong? And the idea is um, It may not be wrong now what you're doing But we believe it's unconstitutional or it's illegal And if we prove Or if the law changes or if we prove that what you're doing is illegal We will come after you personally And we will sue you personally for what you have done and this is kind of a maybe just a retroactive thing but you can kind of understand, for instance, if, if somebody is a, a burglar, he robbed a house. Nobody saw him. He didn't get caught, but he robbed the house. And all the neighbors know he, you know, what house he robbed, but they can't prove it. They can't touch him because there was no pictures, you know, whatever, of him robbing the house, but they were pretty sure it was him. That's the kind of situation where you would issue a misprision of treason, not to a burglar, but, you know, somebody you believe has done wrong. Just putting them on notice, we think you did it, we're pretty sure you did it, you know, your actions prove you did it, and if we prove you did it, we're coming after you, and that's all it is. And it does put a measure of fear into the people that receive it because you're saying to them, and public office could be a city councilman or a county commissioner or whatever, you're saying to them, we're going to hold you accountable for what you're doing. Don't think that you're going to skate through this and not, not be accountable. We will hold you accountable, and we'll come back at, at any time in the future as a result of this, and we will sue you personally for your actions. And uh, this kind of thing may not have a legal impact right away, but it'll make them think the next time they pull off some underhanded thing.
0: Yeah, I mean that's just it. It's like even some kind of uh, some kind of social pressure, or some you know social slash legal pressure that can say, "Look, you know, you're pushing and." we're, we're pushing too. I mean, we've gotta, um, we've gotta be able to think about it in terms of tactics. Um, Tom, I think uh, just if you have anything else to add to this, I think the activism on the local level is, is spot on um, because this, the local level seems to be where, you know, they're coming in and trying to make these changes. Um, Going to these meetings, applying these tactics, uh, any other advice as to what, what we could do?
2: Well, as I said, we're we're working on uh you know trying to get this training together uh to help people so they can stand up and and uh you know be feel secure in in uh, taking action because I understand, you know, that, that that's very intimidating. Uh let me just say this, um as I said we're going to we're putting this manual together and what Pat was just talking about is also part of that and uh and so we're you know the legal side of it, the legislative side of it, the uh uh activism just right there in front of your city councilman. Uh, I would just ask people if they would go into my website at AmericanPolicy.org and uh, just put their name on our email list if they're interested in this. And as soon as we are ready to start these webinars we'll start announcing it from there so you'll you'll learn about it and you'll get that. And uh, so just go to AmericanPolicy.org and get that. Um, and I've got, you know, uh, a couple of books that I've written on this, my latest book, Sustainable Development, uh, The uh, War on Free Enterprise, Private Property and Individuals is the subtitle. Sustain- or actually, it's called Sustainable. And uh, uh, this has all the history, a lot of what we've talked about today, uh, a lot of the history of the players and some things about what to do about it. And I wrote it as a manual for local activists to use and I'm getting very, very good feedback to that. So, uh, uh, You know, those are just some things people can do to to begin to build and and start to organize.
0: Sounds good. And Patrick, do you have any other uh, thoughts on solutions here?
1: I would encourage people to go to citizensforfreespeech.org and uh, become a member. It doesn't cost anything, but uh, we're actively not only fighting censorship, but we're also defending the First Amendment and all of its uh, facets. Um, you've got religion, you've got free speech, you've got uh, free freedom of the press, the right to assemble peaceably, the right to redress government. Uh, all of these things are under full, full court attack right now. So uh, <clears throat> we're, we're scrambling to, uh, you know, to get people together, a body of people together that are willing to stand with us and, and move forward with some clout. Uh, for unfortunately, today, one person can't go out and do anything. We need to be together. We need to be unified as as a group. And uh, that's what we're trying to do as Citizens for free speech. so i I encourage people to just go sign up, put your name on the put your name on the line, say yep, i'm I'm for maintaining the First Amendment, and I am for restoring our civil liberties to America right now. They're being trashed. Everybody knows that. But uh, this is the purpose of creating uh, citizens for free speech in the first place. And we will, by the way, be working with Tom. We already are. <laughs> but um, but this is this is such an important issue. This this ability to communicate and stuff, and it's being ripped away from us uh, on every level. Not only the government level, but you know, social media, Google, and you know, we're we're being trashed all over the place. We need to stop it. We just need to stop it. And only people can do this. I put no trust whatsoever in any political leadership. That. Democrats have been complicit in this from day one but so have Republicans. This may I could I could hop up and down on this. Mm-hmm. Through all the generations of political you know ups and downs and the pendulum swinging since 1973 every single administration Republican or Democrat have advanced this agenda as if it was their own. And they can rattle a saber, oh, we're against this, oh, we're against that, but when they go out of office, you look at what they've done, and they've done nothing to stop it. They've done everything to, to push it forward again, which only shows you there has been a shadow government behind the scenes of these technocrats that are pulling the strings. They all have been in bed with them, and even today, I I don't want to talk about any social politics or whatever, but even the administration today has done nothing to impede, really, this whole technocrat scheme, sustainable development scheme. And in many cases, they've done things that exacerbate it and that move it right along. Things like opportunity zones, we discussed before. This is just incredible. So don't look to your political party for any help here. This is a, it, this is a movement of people. We're just citizens. Forget the political labels. We live here, for Pete's sake, this, this is us, folks. We the people. We're the only ones left that can possibly make a difference in America. And it has nothing to do with political parties. That will not be the way it's achieved. It's our local action, our shoes on the street that's going to do it. And we need to get as many people as we can in our local communities to bind it up and say, look, forget this, forget this stuff. I don't care who you are. If you're a libertarian, Republican, Democrat, liberal, progressive, I don't care who you are. You bring these policies into America. We're going to reject you. We're going to reject the policies, and we're going to run you out of town because you don't belong here. This this is not the way we do it in America, period. So I'm with Tom on that. Local action is the only thing that can matter at this point.
0: Yeah, I hear you. I mean, another thing that you mentioned in technocracy rising is that the technocrats. Uh, transcend politics. They don't care about the left or the right. The, the, they use the left and the right. It's, they can yep. be national socialists and they can be democratic socialists, and it works That's the right. same as far as they're concerned. So no difference. You know, getting caught up in this left-right paradigm is not helping. Working on the community level, uh, I think you guys are both right on that. Um, is the way to go to to stop this from getting into your city or your town or your community. Well,
2: and Doug, there's, there's just one thing I want to uh, add to that. Yeah. Uh, I'm hearing from so many people that, uh, you know, the, the focus is getting President Trump reelected. And the point of the matter is that if we don't get control of our city councils, our mayors, our state legislatures, our county commissions, and and of course, the uh both houses of Congress. If we don't do that, then it won't matter if Donald Trump is reelected. The he could. I, I, I envision that he would be thrown out of office halfway through his inaugural address, you know, that it won't happen. And the the, the problem, that I think one of the greatest problems at this moment immediately in front of us is ballot security, the ballot box. And they are doing everything in their power to mess up any kind of ballot security, these mail-in ballots, these early voting, all of that, on and on and on all dilute the ballot box. And this is, I think, the number one issue at the moment that we need to focus on to make sure that we have a secure and, and fair election. And I believe if we did that, that we could wipe these guys out at every single level of government, and we get good people in office, and we could begin to repeal and dump all the bad stuff they've done. I think, the, I think the majority of the country is ready for that, but I believe this election is going to be absolutely stolen unless we make it a major issue to secure the ballot box.
0: Well, very good, Tom. It uh, looks like we're probably out of time here. Time to wrap it up is uh, AmericanPolicy.org. That's where people can reach you. Any, any, other, uh, any other place where they can go to get information? Anything else you want to say?
2: Well, that's the main thing. It's our, our group's American Policy Center and our website, AmericanPolicy.org. We've got a huge archive of articles on there with all these, these issues from years that we've been doing this. Uh, and I mentioned my book, Sustainable, but also uh, there are several other tools on there that we've created uh, to help people. There's a small booklet that you can actually download for free called Agenda 21 and How to Stop It, and we just updated that and uh so you know go in there i think you'll find a plethora of information uh to help you out and, and get up on these issues but we have got to get organized and, and get active uh and stand up against this stuff and uh if we don't as pat said you know it's uh it, we're it it's all there is and uh so i encourage everyone get on there sign up for our webs or our, for our um email and then you'll know when we're ready to start these webinars. And on one of those webinars, Pat's going to be on there as well. So, uh, you know, we're, we're working on it. it be a, just a couple of weeks. All
0: right. Sounds great, Tom. And thank you so much for your work. Really appreciate what you're doing. It's uh, it's definitely feels like an uphill battle sometimes. But if we don't mm-hmm. do it, then we know where we're going. So. Um, yeah. And let me just give uh, Patrick uh, a few minutes. There's uh, the citizensforfreespeech.org and also technocracy.news, correct, if people want to get in touch and get some more information about uh, technocracy and the work that you're doing. Any, Any other last words?
1: Well, you know, not really. People do need to get educated, get up to speed quickly on this. There's no time to pussyfoot anymore. Um, I've got tons of videos and stuff on the internet. People can go to YouTube, for instance, type in my name or just whatever into and a Google or Bang or whatever you use. Duck Duck Go. Type in Patrick Wood, you find a lot of stuff uh, that you can you know catch up on. And uh, Technocracy.News has a just a bucket load of uh, articles and information and stuff that will help people understand. There's no excuse for not learning today. There, the material is out there. It just takes a little effort, but. Uh, you know, uh, go to technocracy.news, check it out, get on the mailing list, start diving into the topic and stuff. And um maybe buy me all my books and stuff, by the way, are available on Amazon as well. So there's Kindle version, there's audiobook version on my latest book. Uh there's there's really no excuse for people not kind of getting into this learning. You know, hey, how do you want to learn? I got it, I got you covered. Go ahead. right. <laughs> <laughs> I know
0: this is the key, getting people to uh to to at least, you know, absorb some of this information. It's not going to be presented on the corporate media and, uh, you know, getting some exposure, get outside of your comfort zone, learn something new, figure it out, and then decide for yourself what you think. But, uh, you know, I think historically we've seen what happens when really controlling systems come down on the rest of us. So, uh, hopefully we've convinced a, a few, a few more people today, to uh, come down on the side of freedom of choice uh, and to live in uh, communities and cities and a society based on uh, freedom of action and uh, not allowing these controlling elite to use ideas like scientism and technocracy to really enter into our lives and start making these choices for us so uh, I want to I really want to thank both of you guys for being on here. This was a great conversation can 't wait to get this one out uh, it should take me just a couple of days to get the Uh, editing done, and we'll have this uh, out on the internet as soon as possible. And uh, thank everyone who's been listening to this, everyone who gets it when it gets out there. Uh, Really valuable information. Really appreciate everyone who's taking the time to uh, learn a little bit about technocracy, Agenda 21, and the rollout that's going on right now. So uh, thanks again, and you all have a great day. Take care. Thanks a lot. Well, all right, people. Uh, another great conversation I've had. I'm enjoying doing these roundtable discussions. Uh, I thought uh, Tom DeWeese and Patrick Wood were really on fire, got them going about uh, UN Agenda 21 and uh, the technocratic takeover that seems to be really happening right before our very eyes with the coronavirus that's going on and uh, everything that's being imposed on us uh, in undemocratic ways. I think the conversation, especially about scientism, I really enjoyed with Patrick and uh, listening to Tom discuss these anti-democratic processes, these ways that uh, the uh, elite classes and their public-private partnerships have been able to circumvent the Constitution and the legislative process uh, by just going behind closed doors and having these conversations with local municipalities, um, providing all the grants and the funding and the planning, and then just basically implementing these, uh, these agendas without real open transparency and without real uh, involvement uh, on that legislative level. So some really good stuff. I want to apologize for the technical difficulties that we had with Tom. I was able to take uh, a lot of that out with the editing. I think it worked out pretty well, and I'm really glad that we got him back at the end. So uh, the conclusion, we were able to kind of finish things up in a good way with that. Uh, I wanted to let everybody know that uh, Transparent Media Truth is starting to have a Q&A with uh, Dr. Andy Kaufman. Uh, we've had him on a couple of episodes now, and he's willing to come back. Uh, maybe with another guest or a variety of different guests and do a a little bit of a series of question and answer. So if you have a question uh, for Dr. Kaufman on medical issues, uh, if you're familiar with his stuff or you can check out uh, some of the previous roundtables with him included, find out about him. Uh, If you have a question for him, then uh, please think about sending an email to transparentmediatruth at gmail.com. We're going to compile a list and then uh, we're going to start to be able to give some of these questions to uh, Andy and Andy and a guest and have conversations about them. So if you have questions, uh, please go ahead and send an email to transparentmediatruth at gmail.com and we'll get that started. It's a new project. It should be pretty fun. Uh, also, if you have any ideas uh, for other guests that we could have or other pairings that you'd like to see, uh, go ahead and shoot an email our way. So hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, I know I did. You can remember you can find my stuff at uh, www.theshiftnow.com. My podcast is called The Shift with Doug McKenty. Uh, I'm on YouTube and Facebook and on Twitter at dmckenty. Uh, or you can find me on Patreon as well at The Shift with Doug McKenty. So thanks again for checking us out. And uh, we hope you uh, like the YouTube channel and like the stuff and uh, keep on participating in what we got going here. We're a, a young production company, uh, but we've already had some great guests and some great conversations. So again, I really appreciate you for listening and uh, hope you'll stay involved. All right. Take care. opinions and ideas expressed in this roundtable discussion do not necessarily reflect the views of transparent media truth, but only those of the speakers participating in the discussion. Under the copyright disclaimer within Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, allowances are made for fair use of public content for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. Fair use is a use permitted by copyright statute that might otherwise be infringing. Nonprofit, educational, or personal use tips the balance in favor of fair use.